0: Tonight, Canada's largest journalism union announces it will campaign against the Conservatives. I appreciate their honesty. It's November 16th, and this is The Ezra Levant Show. Why should others go to jail why? when you're a biggest carbon What's consumer i know there's 8 customers here and you won't give them an answer you come here once a year with a sign and you feel morally superior the only thing i have to say to the government about why i publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so here's the front cover of a recent copy of mclean's magazine you might not know who they all are that's andrew shear the federal conservative leader in the middle there uh, to his right is Jason Kenney, the Alberta opposition leader, who will probably be Alberta's premier next year. And the others from left to right, obviously, it's uh, Doug Ford, premier of Ontario. Then that's Brian Pallister of Manitoba. And on the right there, that's Scott Moe of Saskatchewan. Uh, they're against the carbon tax. And that's the theme of the story. Now, Maclean's magazine isn't really a thing anymore. They used to be published weekly. They were once the leading news magazine in Canada. but That's not even a thing anymore. Uh, Now, McLean's barely publishes once a month, and most of its staff has just been let go. And Rogers, which owns it, has put it up for sale. Uh, I guess you could say it's sad, but that's what happened to a lot of magazines. And McLean's really lost its way. This cover is an anomaly that uh, they have any conservatives on it at all. Normally, it's just liberal propaganda. I mean, seriously, uh, uh, Donald Trump ate our lunch in an after renegotiation, but they called our disastrous negotiator, God's gift to Canada. It was so cringeworthy. Yikes. I've lost track of how many of their covers feature loving pictures of Trudeau on them. Uh, I guess they thought that everyone in Canada just loves Trudeau as much as they do. But the fact that they're being sold for scraps suggests otherwise. Oh, well. Uh, back to the latest cover, the uh, resistance with those five conservatives on the cover. I'm not sure why those leaders posed for that picture the way they did. Uh, put it back up on the screen for a second. Let's show it. Does it look like a, a sign of strength? Yeah, maybe. I think it makes them look like a group of bankers or something. Almost the, the Lebranos looking tough, stiff and angry. Maybe that's what they want to telegraph to tap into voter anger at things. I don't know. My view is that You can never trust the mainstream media to be fair to you, especially with photos. Especially. I mean, take the gorgeous Melania Trump. Um, These are covers of her before uh, she was first lady. She was a supermodel. She graced every fashion magazine in her day. You'd think that now that she's first lady, the media would feast on her beauty and her style. She's exotic, speaks many languages, but she has not been on a single cover of a fashion magazine or a popular magazine in two years. I mean, she's gorgeous, obviously. The somewhat less compelling Michelle Obama was constantly on covers as first lady. Every magazine thinkable. Why not Melania. And, and when Melania is photographed at all, the only pictures that ever make it to publication are those with her not smiling. We all have moments in the day where we're not smiling. Those are the only ones that are used. There is a strong media narrative that Melania is deeply unhappy, that she is somehow trapped in her marriage to Donald Trump or something. It's pure fiction. The media speculation went nuts when she wasn't seen with Trump for a few days, only to have it revealed that she had been in the hospital with minor surgery. If you go on Google, you can actually find plenty of happy pictures with Melania and Donald Trump smiling at each other, but you have never seen them on CNN or CBC or the Globe and Mail, the Toronto Star. The narrative is that she is either evil herself or that she is deeply happy and actually trapped by Donald Trump. And when some, will someone please free her or something? Oh, by the way, has, has Sophie Trudeau Been photographed within 10 feet of Justin Trudeau lately? Not that I've seen. Melania was out of the public eye for a week, and the conspiracy theories went nuts. They were getting a divorce. Um, No such curiosity about Sophie Trudeau's invisibility. I think their grand family vacation to India at taxpayers' expense was really their last quality time together. I'm not into the gossip business, but the rest of the media is. They're quiet on Sophie Trudeau, though, aren't they? All of those points are my long-witted tangents about McLean's and photo editing. But really, I I wanted to show you that resistance uh, front cover that I think looked a bit daunting, a bit wrong. I don't think it looks good, but I could be mistaken. Maybe I'm wrong. But um, what is not mistakable is how many people mocked that pose uh, with satirical takes of their own. Again, that goes to my theory that it was a bad picture to take, deliberately embarrassing and mockable. I could be wrong. But really, it is highly mockable. It is. Or memeable, as the kids say. And one of those memes was made by a big union called Unifor. And you can see the president of Unifor in the middle there. His name is Jerry Diaz. Other executives with him. And you can see their caption, The Resistance, same font as the cover of McLean's, welcome to Andrew Shear's worst nightmare. And that was tweeted on the official Unifor Twitter account. So not a lot of doubt about whose side that union is on. They will surely register as a third-party campaign group in the upcoming election to re-elect Trudeau. You'll recall that Jerry Diaz was actually part of Justin Trudeau's disastrous advisory committee on the NAFTA deal. So Trudeau and Diaz are already buddies, but apparently... Every single member of Unifor is now (laughs) being conscripted uh, into being a liberal too. With their union dues, like it or not. Now, I don't know how many conservatives are working for Unifor. Probably a bunch, at least in Alberta, especially in the oil sands. I don't know how many NDPers are in Unifor. But whatever, they have to pay their union dues so that Jerry Diaz can act out being Andrew Scheer's worst enemy. Uh, and just in case it wasn't clear enough, Diaz retweeted it again. We will stop sheer stupidity. Oh, that's a pun. That's a pun, everybody. But here's the thing. Unifor represents thousands of Canadian journalists, as in reporters. as a reporter's union, sort of weird, but there is one. Those reporters cover Andrew Scheer professionally as a subject in the news. News reporters on TV, news reporters in newspapers. Here's the Unifor handbook to their uh, reporters' union. If you skip ahead to page six, you'll see a list of some of the news reporters who are part of Unifor, the union. I'm going to read three full paragraphs here just so you see how widespread this is. So don't get bored. I just want to read it to you. Local 87M represents the bulk of members at some of the largest national and provincial dailies, including the Globe and Mail, Toronto Star, London Free Press, the Toronto Sun, and Hamilton Spectator. On the West Coast, Local 2000 represents members of the Vancouver Sun in the province, as well as at various Glacier, Black Press, and Continental-owned newspapers across BC, as well as some print shops. Local 191 represents workers at five different newspapers, including the Winnipeg Free Press, Brandon Sun, Thunder Bay Chronicle, Lethbridge Herald, and the Winnipeg Sun. Local 145 represents members in Quebec, including the La Tribune newspaper in Sherbrooke. In the broadcast sector, Unifor is best known as the local TV union, Local M1, represents global TV stations across Canada, as well as independent stations CHCH Hamilton and Czech TV in Victoria. A variety of other vocals represent local TV staff at Bell Media, CTV. Rogers, Patterson, and other independent TV and radio stations. I'll stop there. But that's pretty much almost everybody. I'll mention another union in a moment that's just as bad, and they cover off a lot of the rest of the media, including the CBC. But basically, the reporters of the Globe and Mail and CTV and the Toronto Star, well, they have announced they're going to war. They are campaigning against Some of the people they claim they're reporting on neutrally, the Conservatives. And they're going to war on behalf of some of the people they claim they're reporting on neutrally, the Liberals. Now, obviously, they don't represent everyone in the Union. I listed the Toronto Sun there. I can't believe they're all Trudeau lovers there at the Sun. But can you show me a single journalist anywhere in Canada who is actually doing anything about this outrage, moving a motion at a union meeting to vote against this, to rescind this. I don't know, running to be a shop steward or running to be the president of a union local to put a stop to this politicization of the union. Maybe even suing or threatening to sue the union for forcing them to campaign against someone they're reporting on. Even starting a new politically nonpartisan rival union for political journalists. Not one. Don't be silly. I mean, you can't even imagine if they had done the opposite, endorsed a conservative. That's not even physically, scientifically possible. It it would never happen. And if it did happen, there would be judicial inquiries about the independence of the media and election meddling. I mean, I just showed you in that little graphic by Jerry Diaz, more evidence of journalistic meddling in the Canadian election than there is evidence of Russian meddling in the election, don't you think? But this isn't even news. Here's a list of the super PACs, to use a US phrase, the third party campaign groups who registered with Elections Canada to campaign against Stephen Harper in the 2015 election. As you can see, there's over 100 here, and it's a list of any groups who campaigned in the last election, but I went through them, and all of them except for one that I could identify we're against Harper. There's too many to even list. It's over 100. You can see Unifor on there, of course. They were obviously campaigning against Harper last time, along with a ton of other public sector unions and environmental groups, millions of dollars in dark money. There's even some American groups in there. You could also see another group on that list of anti-Harper super PACs, called the Canadian Media Guild. That's the other big media union in Canada that I alluded to earlier. It mainly represents the CBC and the Canadian Press Newswire service and some fringe sites like Vice News. So I shouldn't just blame Unifor. The other big media union, the Canadian Media Guild, in some ways is even worse they're just not quite as stupid about bragging about their partisanship as mouthy Jerry Diaz is, but I'm glad he's so mouthy now, I know. But here's my point. If you have a reporter from the CBC, from Canadian Press, from CTV, from Global, from the Global Mail, from the Toronto Star, any of a dozen others, and if they are literally paying money from their own pocket to fight against the conservatives in the election, again, this isn't like some big media tycoon editorially endorsing some candidate. This is the ordinary working journalists themselves spending their own personal money, their union dues this way. I'm sorry, how can you trust them to report it straight on TV or in the papers? It would be like someone who, I don't know, worked for General Motors or had a lot of stock in General Motors stock doing an independent review of the best cars and trucks out there, uh, if they hate Ford and love GM, you can't really trust their reportage, can you? And at the very least they should disclose their conflict of interest, don't you think? Don't you think journalists who dip into their own wallet to pay for a hate Harper campaign or a hate Andrew Shear campaign or a hate conservatives campaign, don't you think they should have a little asterisk? with a footnote, little disclosure on TV they're actually part of a political campaign themselves, they're not neutral at all? I think they should. But then again, I'm not part of a journalist union, and I'm not part of a political party. You always suspected you couldn't trust the mainstream media. Now you have proof. Stay with us for more.
1: Delivering Brexit involves difficult choices for all of us. We do not agree on all of those choices, but I respect their views and I would like to thank them sincerely for all that they have done. Mr. Speaker, yesterday we agreed the provisional terms of our exit from the European Union, set out in the draft withdrawal agreement. We also agreed the broad terms of our future relationship in an outline political declaration. President Juncker has now written to the President of the European Council to recommend that decisive progress has been made in the negotiations. And a special European council will be called for Sunday the 25th of November. This puts us close to a Brexit deal.
0: Well, that is from the United Kingdom, which is going through a political meltdown over Brexit. Brexit was a referendum. In fact, it was sort of a premonition of the earthquake that would put Donald Trump into office. It was designed to get the United Kingdom out of the European Union. Well, it's been more than two years, and they're still in, and the Tory party is coming apart over it. Joining us now via Skype to help us understand what's going on is our reporter in London, Jack Puckby. Jack, what the heck is going on in the United (laughs) Kingdom? What's the latest with Brexit? What's going on with Theresa May? Is she gonna be prime minister much longer? Is there gonna be an election? Just help us out here a bit.
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll do my best to summarize this because it's pretty complicated. Basically, we're meant to be leaving the European Union in March of next year. That requires a summit in November where the uh, the UK and the EU presents the withdrawal agreement and says, this is what's happening. Now, Theresa May has come forward with a draft agreement that essentially um, keeps us within the customs union. So. That means we get free trade within the EU, but we can't set our own free trade deals because we're bound by EU regulation. And the reason we're staying in is because of Ireland. So we have this issue. Northern Ireland's a part of the UK. The question is, where will the border go? Because there has to be a border at the edge of the European Union. But we can't put a border in Ireland because that goes against our agreements with both islands. Um, so the issue is, do we put a border down the Irish Sea between Northern Ireland and And England. So that's been causing huge chaos. And what Theresa May has said, well, we can't agree a free trade deal now. What we'll do is we'll have a backstop, which is essentially a temporary solution whereby the UK, including Northern Ireland, stays within this customs union until we reach a deal. So we'll leave in March, technically, with no deal yet. It's a withdrawal agreement, but no actual plans for the future. Um, and people aren't happy about that, which is why people have been submitting something called a, a no confidence letter to the 1922 committee. Once 48 of those are submitted, there's going to be a no confidence vote uh, or a confidence vote in the prime minister. And 48 have now been submitted um, thanks to Jacob Rees-Mogg's push. And by Tuesday, we could have a vote of confidence in the House of Commons to decide whether Theresa May stays on as prime minister or not.
0: Uh, well, it certainly looks bad. Uh, I mean, when you have cabinet ministers resigning, it's one thing for, you know, a backbencher who really didn't have anything to give up. But if you're in cabinet and you're saying, I can't, the perks of cabinet, the prestige, the power, the opportunity for advancement is all these wonderful things. I am voluntarily giving them up on a point of principle. When you're in cabinet and you're quitting, that's a pretty serious thing.
1: Seven people have resigned so far, including cabinet ministers. Uh, Others are parliamentary private secretaries who are still quite important. So there's been seven resignations, including the Brexit secretary, this is the second Brexit secretary that's resigned and they've just replaced him with a guy called Steve Barclay who's known as being ultra loyal. He's uh formerly of Barclay's Bank and he has never ever rebelled against the government. Theresa May is trying to push through with this deal which isn't Brexit uh, and I think something like 13% according to polls of the population actually support 1-3, uh, three, not three zero. Oh. 0 um, and this new Brexit secretary is not going to vote anything down. She's even got some Brexiteers like Liam Fox to come forward and say that a deal is better than no deal, which is a huge U-turn from the narrative a few months ago when everybody in, in government was saying that no deal is better than a bad deal.
0: Huh. Well, I mean, listen, I, I have not got into the minutia of it, but what if... The deal just expired. And I mean, it, it reminds me of Canada, where we just went through our renegotiation with Donald Trump and with the Mexicans of NAFTA. And Trump served notice that he was pulling out of NAFTA. And he basically said, well, you could get a deal or no deal. I'm fine either way. A deal is probably in your interest. Otherwise, we'll just slap tariffs on you. And at literally the night before the deadline, Trudeau signed a deal. But if he didn't, Life would have gone on. It just would have been without that trade yeah. deal. And so as a Canadian who just went through that experience, I'm thinking, okay, so if you're saying the UK is getting out in the spring no matter what, um, if they can't find some interim or replacement deal, how is that really that bad if, you know, suddenly the EU deal evaporates and the UK is still there and Europe is still there and people will still get up in the morning and drive to work and you know the, they'll have to figure things out but really how is that a bad thing
1: it's not. We'd we'd leave and we'd trade on WTO, World Trade Organization, rules. The question then uh, remains, what do we do about the border in Ireland? Because there needs to be a border on the edge of the EU with the UK, which is Northern Ireland. So that question will remain. But Jacob Rees-Mogg's European Research Group has put forward multiple suggestions of using technology at the border that can solve that. Uh, the real question is, what would happen with regards to uh, customs arrangements uh, coming from Europe to the UK? um something like six seconds is all it takes for things to pass through customs uh, at, at the border. Um, it, it really wouldn't cause that much of a problem. People say it would cause queues for miles uh, in the south of England, which we, we just know wouldn't happen. And Project Fear, which is what we call the, the people stirring up all these terrible ideas about what would happen if we left without a deal, have suggested all sorts of crazy stuff. They suggested that planes would be uh, stopped from flying into Europe, but we know from people within europe mayors of the, uh, the the regions in question have said no that's just not going to happen there's all these rumors flying around but there is simply no way that the eu would cut its uh, nose to spite its face in the, in, in this instance because they need us
0: yeah well all these terrible things that were supposed to have happened immediately after the brexit vote Almost none of them have happened. All these big banks were saying, "Well, we're going to move to Frankfurt." Listen, I've been to London and I've been to Frankfurt, and I got nothing against Frankfurt, but don't tell me million-dollar-a-year bankers are going to leave the world's most amazing, one of the world's most amazing cities, London,
1: to no go to Frankfurt.
0: That just ain't happening.
1: No, no, no way at all. They, they told us that there'd be an instant recession the minute we even voted. Uh, And by the way, one thing that's really bugged me about this, people are now talking about a second referendum because people who voted Brexit feel so terrible about what they've done, what Brexit's done to this country. And I just need to remind those people, Brexit hasn't happened yet. It's been two years. We still haven't left. All this turmoil that we're experiencing now is not because of Brexit. It's because of the absolutely terrible job that Theresa May and the government have done so far. If we have a real Brexit, we'll be fine.
0: Yeah, I mean, you really do need someone uh, to borrow a phrase who knows the art of the deal—a a, a tough negotiator who who has actually done that uh, in his or her life. I don't—I get the feeling that's not Theresa May. Okay, I've—I've I've just two last questions to you, and I know that I'm being overly simplistic, and I, I just—I just don't know the details, and I know you've been following them closely. I guess I have two questions. One is, barring some. Second do over referendum, which I really sense won't happen. Is the exit, is the Brexit really going to happen in the spring? Is it like, is that button already pushed and the, the timer counting down? Is that already afoot?
1: Yeah, that's already signed into law. We have to leave in March. Um, we, we, we can't extend Article 50, uh, which is the, pr- the the process of withdrawing. It is in law that we leave in March. Now, the question is how we do it. Um, but what's really interesting is if this, this deal that Theresa May is presenting, by the way, she has to pass it through Parliament. And right now, the maths don't add up. There's 80 to 100 um, MPs in Jacob Rees-Mogg's group. That leaves 200 other MPs in the Tories. Most Tories don't uh, support her. The the vitriol against her in prime minister's questions time uh, in the House of Commons is uh, remarkable, coming from her own party. She's now looking for votes from Labour and the Lib Dems to pass this through. If it doesn't pass, I don't know what will happen, because I can't see Parliament allowing us to go through a no deal as well. So really, right now, nobody can predict what on earth is going to happen. Uh, It's possible, maybe, that she'll just scrape through and just about get the votes she needs.
0: Yeah. I want to show you, you mentioned Jacob Rees-Mogg a couple of times. Uh, Here's a great little exchange he had. And I'm jealous as a Canadian because we'd never have this kind of... um, free debate and speech in our parliament everyone is whipped to the end here's jacob rees mob going a couple rounds with his own government take a look
1: my right honorable friend and she is unquestionably honorable said that we would leave the customs union annex two says otherwise (coughs) my right honorable friend said that she would maintain the integrity of the united kingdom a whole protocol says otherwise my right honorable friend Said that we would be out of the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice. Article 174 says otherwise. As what my right honorable friend says and what my right honorable friend does no longer match, should I not write to my right honorable friend, the member for Altringham and Sale West?
0: Um, so he's a very he's a conservative and he's challenging the Conservatives. I got a question for you. What does Boris Johnson? figure in all this because he's one of the ones who quit his very high pro i think he was the foreign secretary that's about as close to the top as you get he quit that over brexit is he uh, what's he doing and and is it almost a certainty that there will be a leadership race in the conservative party now and that Theresa may's days are numbered
1: well david liddington who's uh, Theresa may's de facto deputy has said he thinks that she'll win a confidence vote handsomely and I agree with him um, because, first off, a Brexiteer will not become prime minister or leader of the Tories. And that's just a quirk of the way the system works. So uh, they need, in order to create a ballot of two candidates to go to the members of the Tory party to elect a new leader, the MPs have to decide who those two people are. Given there's only 80 Brexiteers in the Tories out of what, something like 300 uh, MPs, there's no way in hell that a Brexiteer will end up on that ballot paper. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's no way that Boris Johnson can become leader. Mm -hmm. Um, I think she'll win that vote as well because if you're a Remainer, you've got to be mad to think, A, you've got to be mad to want the job, and B, you've got to be mad to think that you can do a better job at uniting the country than Theresa May. Mm -hmm. I think she'll stay in the job just because people are terrified about what will happen if we throw even more chaos into the mix.
0: Isn't that interesting? I guess my next question is, um, will there be a chance that, there will be a, an, an election soon on this matter because the only thing that terrifies me more than Theresa May is Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party. Is there a chance that the UK could be heading to the polls soon?
1: Maybe, if if she loses the vote of no confidence, maybe, because then we've got the question of who takes over and if somebody else takes over, I mean, it's hard to claim a mandate at this point because the, the country is so divided. The polls have shifted so much. They might just have to take it to a general election. Uh, and if they do that, I suspect part of that general election will be to include a, a, a policy promise, a manifesto promise of delivering the deal we already have or uh, going for a second referendum, which I think is actually possible, unfortunately. Jeez.
0: I, I guess my only last question is I've... I've I met the new leader of the UKIP party, Gerard Batten. I like the guy as a fellow, but he's low in the polls, and he seems to me to be not well known. Nigel Farage is so personally associated with the UKIP, and he was the great champion of the independence, the Brexit uh, referendum. What are his plans? He looks like he's getting friendly with Boris Johnson. Is he going to dive back into politics on the national side as opposed to the European Parliament side? What's Nigel up to?
1: Good question. Uh, there's the, well, UKIP has to have a leadership election in March because Gerald Batten wasn't elected. He was appointed because the party was in crisis. Um, and he's stepping down in March. Um, so then the question is, who's the next leader? Uh, and Farage has said he would consider coming back. Although with the shift that UKIP's had towards a Islamophobic sort of policy, uh, I suspect maybe Farage doesn't want to come back. Um, I don't know. From the sidelines, it's really hard to tell. If he wants to come back into politics, he'd either have to join the Tories, which I think he'd struggle getting into, um, because many UKIP MEPs who've tried to join the Tories recently have been barred. Um, He'd have to come back as UKIP leader, and I think that's a big step that he doesn't seem willing to take at this point. Well,
0: it's very interesting, and I can't say I have a a deep command of the subject. I just know that the moves they're pulling to stop Brexit so closely track the attempts to delegitimize Donald Trump's election. They're really the same tactics, the same people, the same arguments. Oh, you deplorables didn't know what you're doing. You're a disaster. We're going to lose all our human rights. And so I'm naturally sympathetic to the Brexit. Every time I watch those European Union fools, I think Britain get out. I appreciate the update, Jack, and uh, hopefully things will be clearer in the weeks ahead, although I get the feeling they won't be.
1: Yeah, happy to decode anything else you need uh, with with the negotiations. Cheers, Ezra.
0: All right. Thanks so much, Jack. That's Jack Buckby, our London-based reporter, and he talks with great expertise on Brexit. And I encourage you to watch him, not me, on the subject because I'm asking rather basic and elementary questions. But I know Jack goes deep on the subject from time to time in his videos on our YouTube channel. Stay with us. More ahead on The Rebel. Hey, welcome back on my monologue yesterday about the CBC's pitiful attack on Rex Murphy. Barb writes Rex Murphy is an icon of sanity in the fake news press kingdom. I love his columns and thoroughly enjoyed his weekly viewpoints on CBC when they were a wee bit less the propaganda arm of the current regime. Yeah, you know, they don't have Rex on that often at the CBC anymore. He does write for the National Post, but the National Post I mean, I don't know if it's going to be around long. There's Rex Murphy, there's Conrad Black, there's Terry Corcoran. And I think I've just about listed all the conservatives left at the National Post. That's actually truly sad to me, how they become just another cheap uh, knockoff. of Even to the left of the Globe and Mail too many times. It makes me sad. I say that as an alumnus of the National Post. I was on their editorial board for two years. Jamie writes, I can't figure out how Rex has lasted as long as he has at the CBC. I don't think he's actually lasted very long there. By this measure. I mean, yes, he's been there a long time. His first appearance there was more than 40 years ago. But he's not on there weekly. He's not on there daily. He's there every other month or so. Google it. Uh, I, I think he was there two months ago. Like, he, he's not even on on a monthly basis. So he's, he's about as tenuous a connection to the CBC as can be and still to call yourself a CBC personality. They've got rid of him. Susanna writes, maybe Rex can join the rebel. Well, of course, he would be welcome here to say and write and do anything. He's one of the smartest guys I know and the most independent thinking, and he loves the oil sands. On my interview with Mark Morano, Liza writes, Mark Morano is right. This junk science is what policy is based on and what climate Barbie preaches. It is a vehicle for societal control of the masses for the benefit of the elite. Well, that's the thing. I I didn't have the time, but maybe I'll do that now, is I'll go and search which federal Canadian liberals tweeted that original false study. I bet Catherine McKenna did. I haven't checked it yet. I'll check it after I tape this broadcast. I bet she tweeted the uh, error-filled first report, and I would bet my life—I wouldn't bet my life, I'd bet almost anything— That she did not tweet a correction to it why would she she's in the propaganda business not the facts business well that's our show for the day hope you enjoyed the week's worth of shows by the way if you're in the toronto area tomorrow night saturday night we're hosting a hospitality suite at the ontario pc party convention we're going there as journalists we'll cover the convention Unlike Andrew Shears federal conservatives, Doug Ford hasn't banned us from his conservative convention. So we're going there. David Manzi is going to be leading our coverage. He's great. And then at, uh, at I think it's 9 p.m., um, just across the street of the hotel, we're having a hospitality suite. So if you're in the Toronto area, and I'll buy you the first drink. Come on by. It's, I think it's the Delta. Uh, right across from the Ontario Convention at 9 p.m. See you there. Uh, If not, I'll see you on Monday. Until then, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, to you at home, good night, and keep fighting for freedom.